Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. The border and immigration are a current fascination of Washington and subjects of a long simmering national debate. While reports about walls, razor wire, and detention centers continue to top the news, they're only part of the story. On today's show, we bring you other perspectives on the border and what brings people to the United States. We get the view from Mexico City, and we learn a bit about what life is like in Guatemala, a nation sending significant numbers of immigrants north. Who's going to pay for the wall? 100%. Mexico is going to pay for the wall. It's a familiar refrain from President Trump, beginning on the campaign trail and continuing today. But so far, Mexico has not volunteered or been forced to pay for any of the proposed border wall nor the recent installation of razor wire on existing fencing in places like Nogales, Douglas, or Naco. Many of those trying to cross the border now come from Central America, fleeing countries like Honduras and Guatemala. They make the weeks-long trip through Mexico to get to the U.S. border. Jorge Valencia is a Mexico City-based reporter for KJZZ's Fronteras desk. When asked how Mexico's been treating this through migration, he says there are two answers. So the first one, the most recent one, uh, started when uh, President Andres Manuel López Obrador took office uh, on December 1st. And during his campaign and uh, during his presidency so far, roughly the first three months, he says that he wants to take a humanitarian approach to migration. Now, migration from other countries, specifically, mostly from northern Central America, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, what they call the Northern Triangle, has become very visible in the past year because of what are called, uh, we informally refer to as caravans, which is groups of hundreds, maybe even thousands of migrants who get together and they travel on foot or on bus or on train at the same time, basically seeking safety in numbers. This has been happening for many years, but now that it's much more visible, the new president is saying, we want to allow these people uh, to travel safely through our country. Now, the second half of the answer of Mexico's approach is sort of the flip side of this, which is to say that Mexico is in a tough spot because there are people crossing through Mexico, entering Mexico who want to reach the U.S. And then on the other hand, Mexico has this northern neighbor that you know, whether they admit it or not, Mexican officials, the Mexican government wants to be in a good place with a northern neighbor. And as we know, especially right now, our federal administration has taken a very tough approach on migration. And so in Mexico over the last five years has deported more than half a million people back to Central America, many of them detaining them one day and deporting them the following day. So Mexico had, had taken a very tough approach on, on migrants. You said since the new president came in, Mexico uh, officially has been trying to take a more humanitarian approach, especially to these caravans. I in what way? How, how are they trying to take a more humanitarian approach? So there are two tangible ways in which it has been more humanitarian. The first one is that Mexico has issued many more what they call humanitarian visas, which allow people to tr legally travel through Mexico for 30 days. And most of those instances also with people who are eligible uh, to renew that for up to a year. So in that sense, it's humanitarian because it, it allows people to come out of the shadows and to be able to travel freely so that it is less dangerous. There are many dangers that come with, with traveling on foot through Mexico where 
through Central America, the obvious ones that, that you're on foot, but then also there's a lot of organized crime that preys on these migrants. The second tangible, sort of tangible right now, is that the new Mexican president has said that he wants to uh, address the root causes of migration. And in order to do that, he says he wants to create a, a development plan for southern Mexico and for the northern triangle so that, in short, there are more jobs and people have a reason to stay. You mentioned the Mexican government trying to stay somewhat in the good graces of the U.S. federal government. What is the reaction in Mexico City, say, from the new president when U.S. President Donald Trump comes out with these hardline immigration stances and says, we're going to build a big, beautiful wall? What does Mexico City say about all that? This is actually very interesting because the current president has a very elegant way of simply not addressing it. Unlike his predecessor, Enrique Peña Nieto, who was in, in office until just a few months ago, you could tell that the previous president was, was very uncomfortable with it because he could tell that it didn't, it didn't look good to have a, a, the president of another country saying things that were not very favorable about Mexico and for him to not do anything about it. So they sort of try to walk a tightrope to have a good relationship in the, through closed door meetings with the U.S. government. Uh, but then he would say publicly he repudiates some of the statements that President Trump would make via Twitter, which is the way that he communicates. Now, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he, he basically just doesn't really opine on, on President Trump. Even he gives press conferences almost every weekday. And even when he's when he's asked about it, he, he just very elegantly dodges the question. He doesn't really address it. It, it seems that he really has come to understand that it, he doesn't really gain very much by responding to any foreign leader uh, speaking about Mexico. We're talking with Jorge Valencia. He's a reporter with KJZZ's Fronteras Desk in Mexico City. Jorge, you mentioned a minute ago some of the cross-border migration on Mexico's southern border. What is Mexico doing to deal with its own immigration issues for uh, people coming from Honduras, Guatemala? So what we're seeing is that on the one hand, they're allowing people or they're making it easier for, for people to cross through the country legally. And then what, what's happening is that there's there's a bottleneck in some of these border cities, primarily in Tijuana, across the border from San Diego. And so Mexico is kind of trying to figure it out on the federal level. And then on the local level in some of these cities, they're struggling to, to handle this influx of people. And in some cases, uh, some of these local communities are losing patients. And then something that exacerbates that is a, a new policy from the Department of Homeland Security um, that came out in the last couple of months, which is referred to as the Remain in Mexico policy, in which people who, are, who travel through Mexico and apply for asylum to the U.S. at, at the Mexico-U.S. border, some of them, their, their claims are being received and then they are being returned to Mexico to wait out their cases. These cases could take months, they could take years. And so Mexico's response has been, to paraphrase it, we don't like it, but we are going to receive these people uh, because we're not going to send them back to a, a country that where they, they say that they have credible fear for, for their safety. When you talk to Central American migrants, uh, what are their reasons for leaving home and wanting 
to transit through Mexico, which he said is a very difficult trip up into the U.S. The most common reasons that that people give is that they fear for their safety. Everybody who I've met traveling uh, through through the country who've come here through through Mexico City, they, they tell just these awful, horrific stories of being extorted by gangs in their neighborhoods. Another reason that is closely related to that is that there are no opportunities, uh, they say, uh, for them to make a living, whether they're people who come from the country or people who come from a city. They say there are no, no job opportunities. That's the second reason. And I'd say the third common reason as well is uh, instances in which they, they have family members or many of their family members are, are living in the U.S. and they simply want to be with their family members. That was Jorge Valencia, a reporter based in Mexico City. This week, we're getting lesser-heard perspectives on the border and immigration debate. Guatemala is a major starting point for thousands of people trying to come to the United States. Arizona Daily Star reporter Perla Treviso recently traveled to Guatemala to gain some perspective on what's happening there and joined us to talk about her reporting. I just came back from uh, two communities in Guatemala. One is called Yalambojos, and the other one is Bulej. It's in the area known as the Western Highlands of Guatemala. And um, the purpose of the reporting was to find out a little bit more about the root causes of, of the families that are migrating. We keep reporting from the Arizona side of the families being released by ICE and, and, and asylum seekers, and I wanted to kind of understand a little bit more of what's happening on the other side, and also what's the situation for the families who are left behind. What did you find in the villages you visited? I found uh, that, you know, a lot of people are, are leaving, and, and these are areas that were highly impacted by a 36-year uh, internal conflict. So a lot of these are families that were refugees in Mexico and had left at some point and then came back in the mid-90s. And that's kind of when immigration to the U.S. first started, and this is kind of another development of, of that migration. In the areas where I, I visited, it's a lot of uh, economic issues, uh, the root causes. N that's not to say that other Guatemalans coming from other regions might be facing more of the gang violence or domestic violence that we hear in, in the news and we hear from families here. What's the effect on these communities where there's such a big migration out? The, the impact on this community, so I think in some ways it's still hard to, to know what will be in the long term because this is still a relatively new phenomenon. But what we can see by visiting these places, for example, schools are you know, their, their kids are leaving. Uh, we, we were just visiting one classroom where there was an empty desk and, and the teacher said that one of the little boys had, had left and he didn't know what had happened to him. And another little boy mentioned that he had left to the U.S. with his father and that he would soon leave as well. And then those who are, are left behind, you have a combination of disinterest because they figure I'm going to go to the U.S. eventually or also lack of uh, affordability. So you, you have less and less students left in, in, in those classrooms. What's it like for them to come to school one day and their friends are gone? And as you said, little boy said, and I'm going soon too. What What's it doing to these kids? I think it, it causes this pressure to migrate. And you hear it from adults and also from the, the youth that they, they start seeing that the only way to really get out of poverty or not even get out of poverty, the only way to have a house or an actual shot at being someone is if you migrate to the 
the U.S. Uh, for example, I, I spent an afternoon with a a 19-year-old named Pascual, and he first migrated as an accompanied minor a few years back and was deported. And, and so once he was deported, then the father ended up migrating with Pascual's younger sibling. And I asked him, you know, do you think you're still going to try to go back eventually? And he said yes, because even though his father migrated to the U.S. for the family to have a house, he wants to have a house of his own. And, and have a family of his own one day. And so even though he has just gone through this whole experience, he says that he might might leave again. Is this common that the families are splitting up like that? And is it a temporary thing where eventually the whole family tries to come, or are they permanently split? I think you have different scenarios regarding families. So you have the cases where the father had migrated in the mid to late 90s or 2000s and and the mom was left behind with some of the children and so now you're seeing the mom and some of the kids joining the father who was already in the US you also have some other cases where the two parents migrate with the kids together and they might cross separately so as to not be separated or or you have the cases where the mom is left behind with the rest of the kids and you know, before the the way migration worked is that men would come to the U.S., work for a while to pay the smuggler's fee to be able to save money, to build a house, to buy a truck, to buy some land, and then would go back eventually, you know, after eight or six years or so. It's going to be interesting to see what happens now with this new migration trend and, and see if it's the same thing where, where they come and they stay for a few years and then go back and, and, and now the family's reunited. But I, I'm wondering, especially that the younger kids, the younger you migrate, I think the harder it is going to be for those kids to go back to a country where they're not going to really be as familiar with. You mentioned paid the smugglers fees. This is something I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about. From what you heard when you were there, what are the fees? How much are they paying to to be smuggled into the U.S.? So families are going into debt from anywhere from five, seven, ten thousand dollars or more, which is a lot of money when you think about making about fifty quetzales a day. I think one dollar is about seven quetzales, and and so I I had heard about the issues of debt that once you know you you have to borrow money to pay the smuggler fee and and how that kind of helps the cycle of debt helps fuel my future migration but it was it was very startling to actually hear it from so many so many families of what role actually debt is playing into the decisions to migrate and and that cycle of debt fueling the cycle of migration it's just because part of the family's here but the rest of the family wants to come so you have to come here to get better jobs? Is that the whole idea? Essentially. So for example, going back to the story of Pascual and his father. So from what I, from what he says, that the father had tried to come to the U.S. previously and, and attempted three times and failed. So now they had the, the $10,000, for example, that they had paid for uh, Pascual's father to come, and he never even made it. But you still have to pay that money back. And then you have the money that they borrowed for Pascual to come and he was deported within two years, so that was not enough time to pay neither his father's debt nor his own debt. And so now the father had to borrow money again to come back to the U.S. and and hopefully, in their mind, stay long enough to then pay both of those debt and then stay longer to build that house. 
And so you through that story, for example, you can see the pressure of even if you don't make it and you get deported, that you have to find a way to get back because by staying in Guatemala, you're not going to be able to pay those 10, 12 or however much you borrowed. And a lot of people end up losing their land, end up losing whatever house they have because they put this as collateral. So they even go back to a worse situation than they left. I want to go back to the schools. You said one of the schools you visited had an empty desk in the classroom. It was a child who had just left. I would think that would make learning for them hard, wondering if my friend is going to be here tomorrow. And for them, I think, as well, you know, wondering, am I going to be the one migrating next? Because also hearing from teachers and the school principal, you know, for a lot of kids, also they, they do not want to come to the U.S., but the the parents kind of, you know, say this is kind of what you have to do to to help out the family. It becomes a family ordeal because, you know, this are, this tend to be large families with six, seven kids. That's something we always don't hear about. The kids don't want to come. Did you talk to any of those kids who said, no, I want to stay. I don't want to go to the U.S.? Not not in this trip. I heard it from, from the school principal and from the teachers. Um, and I've heard it recently here from some of the shelters that if you talk to kids, were like, well, initially, I, I, I really didn't want to come. And you know, initially, the kid might say, I, I really don't want to go. But then the parent says, like, you know, I'm going to be able to buy you things. You're going to have this and you're going to go to a bigger school. And, you know, once you put it that way, then, you know, a kid is a kid anywhere in the world. And, and I think the, the idea of having a new toy or being able to eat out in the restaurant or having this fancier school would be appealing. All right. Well, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you for having me. We were talking with Arizona Daily Star reporter Perla Treviso about her recent trip to Guatemala. Her story will appear in the Star in the coming weeks. Tucson is just 60 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border and considers itself part of the wider borderlands region. At the University of Arizona, faculty from across the institution are working together to understand cross-border migration and how it impacts communities. Ana Ochoa O'Leary is the co-director of the Binational Migration Institute. In recent times in the news, lots of focus on the border and immigration. We heard a lot about the caravans uh, at one point. First of all, are the caravans something new? Perhaps a little new, but not quite as new as we like to think it is. You know, there has been uh, surges of uh, migrants coming to our border for various reasons, and there have been ebbs and flows. We have, in the past, had large increases, like, uh, you know, astonishing number of people that seem to come to the border almost suddenly, and then that declines, and we are perhaps in a, in a cycle in which we have, a, like, another great uh, migration of people coming for, for their reasons. So, People migrate all the time to try to avoid or flee conditions that do not allow them to live and work and thrive. Um, in the 1990s, late 1990s, we had uh, migrants fleeing poverty, and a lot of what had devastated their economies was uh, our policies in Mexico, primarily Mexico, with the North American Free Trade Agreement. What happened there was that many of the economies, subsistence economies in Mexico were devastated by the influx of agricultural products from the U.S. Because as you know, uh, you know, 
agricultural farmers in the U.S. are subsidized, those subsidized uh, products flooded Mexican markets market so then farmers there were unable to compete with those prices and we put them out of business. NAFTA was passed in 1994 as you might recall. Uh, So a few years after that perhaps around 1998 we begin to see uh, not a caravan but we begin to see a rapid increase in the number of people coming to the U.S. without authorization that were coming from what we now know are that we call the new migration states. These are primarily agricultural uh, subsistence-based economies whose economies were devastated with, with NAFTA. These latest caravans that the president and therefore the news were paying a lot of attention to were coming through Mexico, but it seemed like a lot of the people in those caravans, as everybody was calling them, were from Guatemala, Honduras. What is causing thousands of people at a time to make a very arduous trip to the U.S. border? Countries in Central America have been, again, economically hard hit by, again, our policies in Central America. So just like with Mexico, Canada, and the United States, we had NAFTA. Uh, With Central American states, we had something called CAFTA, that's Central American Free Trade Agreement. So the U.S. uh, set up shop in Central American countries, and the pattern is is similar. They uh, wrecked a lot of the local economies. Uh, People didn't have much choice but to go into those new factories and industries set up by foreigners, the U.S. being one, uh, a big one, a major one, And so then once they're in those factories, uh, these companies lower the wages to increase their profits. So then people are unable to subsist on those low wages. In many of those places, the, the partners or husbands have left long ago to the U.S. for the same reason. And who is left behind are women who are many times politically disempowered they don't see much else except to migrate. So that's one thing. The other circumstance that is is uh, fueling this migration from Central America is a high rate of crime, which is, again, very much related to poverty. Whenever you start to eliminate opportunities for people to have education, to have a good job, to provide for their families, they turn to any type of uh, occupations that will help them survive. A lot of these women are sending their children to the U.S. to help them from being co-opted from gang members. In recent months, we've seen the U.S. military on the Mexico-U.S. border putting up razor wire and being very active. How has immigration enforcement changed along the southern U.S. border over time? The creation of borders in more populated urban areas was designed to push migrants into the more treacherous parts of the desert. Um, And this was uh, codified through uh, the 1994 Border Protection Strategy uh, for the Border Patrol back then. In that document, uh, funds were being requested to create a triple wall structure uh, along these urban areas knowing fully well that migrants would be going in to avoid those urban areas, they would be going into more treacherous parts of the desert. And by realizing that they were putting their lives in peril, so the, the thinking was, 
they would decide not to try to cross into uh, into the United States. So what happened there was then people, more and more people started to die as they went into more treacherous parts of the desert, mostly of dehydration. Um, and another secondary effect was that people were less able to go back and forth as in previous migration cycles where uh, mostly men would come to the United States, work, earn a little bit of cash that they needed, go back home. And so that, that cycle of migration was ended because of the enforcement became so difficult for them to come and go. So then they basically became a pseudo permanent population in our midst because they were unable to go home. So we, in a way, we we set up a fence to keep them in as as much as we put up a fence to keep them out. Do you expect to see policy changes to deal with these migrations, policy changes from the U.S., or are we in a status quo right now? Well, unfortunately, I think uh, we've been in a status quo for some time now. Um, we've had certain uh, immigration policies that have been proposed, uh, the last one in 2005, uh, but that one only dealt with enforcement issue. There was no pathway to citizenship. Uh, consequently, you had in 2006 where you had mass rallies and protests of not only immigrants but also their allies uh, hoping to pressure our Congress to pass an immigration reform bill that would include a pathway to citizenship for those that are already here and those children of migrants who were not born in the U.S. but the so-called uh, 1.5 generation that were here and Americans in, in every other way you know, for those young adults brought as, as children, the best thing for our country would be to allow them to thrive, go to school, serve in our military if they wish, be taxpayers, have jobs, and that would also help our economy. But even an argument as obvious as that um, has not resonated with what seems to be an increasingly nativist wave of thinking uh, that sees outsiders as anybody who is not characteristically portrayed as an American. Ana Ochoa O'Leary is the co-director of the University of Arizona's Binational Migration Institute. And that's the buzz for this week. Join us next week as we pedal our way through a preview of the Cyclovia Street Festival. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Broch has produced and edited the show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.